This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by David Hughes. Dave, how are you getting on, mate? Same as always. <laughs> yeah, okay, mate. Funny enough, I was just looking at myself on this video thinking, good thing I've seen me barber this week. Looking a little bit uh, loose around the edges up there. <laughs> but except for that, mate, fine. Yeah, good. It's been a while since we spoke about haircuts on this show, to be honest. I know. I uh, I think I'm a week or two behind on mine. Um, I chased I chased him up last week, and uh, he said, "Oh, you're not booked into second of March." But I was like, "I think it was going to be second of Feb." So, if anyone cares, yeah, I'm getting an haircut tomorrow. Uh, but that's that's as interesting as my week's been, mate. I've said before, mate. This is the stuff that matters. Um, yeah. and secondary to that stuff is the football, but that's sadly what we're going to talk about for the next hour. So, uh, <laughs> so if you're only interested in the hair. <laughs> yeah, if you're only for hair updates, you can leave, you can leave now. Um, but yeah, we've got a Champions League episode to get to. Uh, we've got into Milan on Wednesday evening, so we're going to speak about that one. Got a few other little talking points around that game. And um, obviously Liverpool have just faced Burnley over the weekend. We're not specifically going to speak about, you know, reviewing the game step by step. But there is talking points related to the game which we're going to start with mate so first of all uh for this week's episode offside um it was very much a talking point in this week's this week's uh, round of fixtures specifically related to liverpool obviously um liverpool caught Burnley offside i think it was seven times in the game uh that's the second most second highest total that liverpool have posted in the premier league this season um, but because of VAR developments, it looked like Burnley were creating clear-cut opportunities one-on-ones with Alisson. How how difficult and how annoying, I suppose, is that um, from a Liverpool perspective? Because it can look like you're, you're wide open at times. Yeah, it can. Um, I think it's probably more annoying for fans, if anything. You know, I think staff-wise, there'll be... Uh, well, they should be. Uh, you know, Klopp and his team should be fairly satisfied. But it, it's this this whole offside thing is quite funny for me because uh, it just feels like it seems to surface every few months with Liverpool. Uh, they have these moments where it looks a little bit tighter than usual and it, it sparks this debate. But I remember going back uh, 18 months ago now uh, Christian Walsh, you know, an OG of the show for the earlier listeners. Um, he asked us, didn't he, our opinions on it because it was, a, again, a hot talking point at the beginning of the 2020-21 campaign. And I'll be honest, my views then were roughly, uh, I, I mean, there was something along the lines of, uh, you know, many teams tend to be forced into their own half because how dominant Liverpool are. As a result, Liverpool get to push their defensive line really high. With the line so high, opposition teams have you know very little space in which to kind of play out uh, under immense pressure. We know Liverpool are really good counter-pressing side as well, so quite often uh, opponents will just have to hit the ball long and try and get in behind. But you know Liverpool's the pace and defence means that the ball has to be almost perfect, especially with Alisson sweeping, which he's very good at. And I think I definitely think that they did 
ramped that up a little bit uh, when VAR came in, in that campaign that we're talking about, because suddenly, you know, no errors were going to be missed. Human error wasn't really a possibility. I know we still have the occasional one with VAR now that you that you've got a few issues with, but, you know, 95% of them, um, the, the correct calls, thanks to VAR. And I think that is as a result of, um, sorry, I think that's why Liverpool decided to go uh, really in on this, this high alarm because it was in many ways, you know, bulletproof. The, 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 the pass to beat them has to be something special and the attacker has to time that run absolutely perfectly. And we see week in, week out, and I'm sure maybe you'll run through them in a minute, Josh. The the offside numbers back it up that it's a, it's a really uh, successful tactic for Liverpool. Yeah, I think at the time we I, I do remember speaking about it at, at at the very beginning, and the talk was is a Liverpool is Liverpool's high line even higher? <laughs> um, but it, it wasn't the case back then. It was more a case of in certain positions, Liverpool's high line. Was not receding. It was staying high and catching opponents offside. It was the offside stuff. And as you said, makes a lot of sense to use that alongside the addition of VAR, considering decisions are now technically perfect. And obviously, Klopp's been heavily influenced by, uh, you know, Ego Saki in the past and his approach. And that Eastern Milan team did, you know, adopt a, uh, an offside stop. And if you get it right, if you've got good players, as well as you've got a, a, a sweeper keeper who's going to sweep up those balls if, if someone does get in. And Alisson's obviously very good 1v1 anyway. I do think it's a, it's a calculated risk that Liverpool's taken. Um, and if you look at the numbers for the season, so far Liverpool have caught 101 players offside. That ranks them top of... I've seen a lot of stats related to the Premier League, so I'll do the whole of Europe. That ranks Liverpool top of Europe. Uh, Europe's top five leagues on 101. Second is Sassuolo with 96 offsides. Then Villarreal on 90 offsides. And then a bit of a drop then to Betis on 73 offsides. The highest team for an English team for perspective is Manchester City on 61 offsides. So Liverpool, 40 offsides more than Manchester City despite playing a game less. So it's very obviously a, a a deliberate attack. Very obviously a, a you know a a pillar of Liverpool's game. Really pillar of Liverpool's defensive game, and it does make Liverpool a very unique defensive team to play against. I think, like if you look at through balls as well, through balls conceded. Um, Liverpool are third in the Premier League for through balls conceded, and if you consider how much of the ball Liverpool have. You know, that's that's quite high to be. Um, only Leeds United and Wolves have conceded more through balls than Liverpool this season. So, Liverpool are that kind of team where if you're watching Liverpool and you're thinking about Liverpool as a defensive team, they are a team that you can really attempt to get behind quite a lot. I mean, if I was an opponent, if I was an opposing coach, that would be what I would attack personally. Um, although it's very hard to execute. Uh, so, from an opposing perspective, I think it's very easy to say, right, offside strap, let's target that. But, but at the same time, Liverpool is so good at executing their offside strap that it's it's difficult, Dave. Yeah, yeah, it is. I was just thinking to myself, um, I wonder how, how much of that, um, how many of those balls, those three balls conceded uh, were actual offsides that were never flagged. 
because I think that's <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that is one kind of uh, issue from a data perspective, which is obviously something we focus on. It has become a bit of an issue because uh, a lot of the times the flag doesn't come late, and uh, sorry, the flag comes very late on or never. It, it, but it, it was offside and would have been flagged offside had it led to anything of note. So it's it's interesting to see if that would uh, how many of them were actually offside. But yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised actually that they're so high in that department because it, it does feel as if that that uh, that form of attack is is the only way you can get through Liverpool. Like I don't really think you can build through Liverpool. You know, I don't think you can play through them with any great success. And it does feel like that is the only way you can in, in, kind of have any chance of creating a high quality chance. And, you know, when it does come off, you are in a very good position. You you usually uh, in behind the defence with, with only the keepers to beat. So if it comes off, it's very profitable. But the problem is, uh, from an opposition perspective, it doesn't come off uh, that often. So it's, it, 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 it's, it is really good from a Liverpool perspective. And it, the other thing I've had on it is, you know, you forget how how important it can be in terms of what you actually gain from winning an offside. You know, you regain possession of the ball inside your own half. Normally, with the opposition having to retreat into the whole own. And if you think of Liverpool's game plan, it tends to be lots of pressure, uh, sustaining attacks. And defending teams, if they're having to defend for long periods, looking for that respite where they can, where they can get up the pitch, you know, get the defence out, have a bit of a breather. Well, that's not possible if you if if your only method of getting out is having to play these direct balls in behind the defensive line. And if it's not coming off, you're either giving the ball straight back to Liverpool or uh the balls you're being flagged for offside and that's a free kick, which is effectively giving the ball straight back to Liverpool. So it's uh, you can see why Liverpool's so reliant on it and why it's it causes so many headaches. Yeah, it's just a bit difficult from a outside perspective. I tweeted after the game a, a little clip of Fabinho, um, quite funny actually. But I think it it, it kind of does highlight the, the reporter's question does highlight how it can play games with with your perspective of of what's happened during the game. I don't think Liverpool were perfect by any means, but say for example, match of the day, match of the day showed four. Burnley chances in their highlight reel, two of which wouldn't have counted if they'd have scored because they were offside. So, but if you're watching the highlight reel, if you're an opposing coach watching the highlight reel, if you're a journalist watching the highlight reel on match of the day, it looks like Burnley are getting in. Um, but you know they're kind of not. So it's it, it is a bit difficult when it comes to your own analysis of the game in terms of Liverpool's expected goals on the day. Liverpool posted the next year 1.6 and Burnley posted exactly half that on 0.8. So you could argue there Burnley probably should have one goal potentially. Um, but then a clean sheet is also very realistic as well. So it does look like a narrow win. Maybe a, you know there's potential there for a one-all, a 2-1, a 2-0 type thing. So not as dominant as we usually see from Liverpool. But, Can you remember any of those shots were as a result of those um, tight calls that might have been flagged offside? Um, I think I can't. You see, no, I think I think Vegas did have two good openings that went offside, and I think one was just a very poor finish, and the other one was kind of like a half volley that he hit wide while he was on the move. Um, mm. So I assume most of their XG stems from that. 
but I'll have to look. I mean, maybe check an understat or something like that. See what understat have recorded. But yeah, he was a he was a Maxwell Cornet chance in particular that lo- literally looked like a one v one, and he was a mile off. So if that's getting valued, that's probably quite wrong. And he was another red horse chance. I think that was also um, you know, quite clear cut. But he was he was clearly offside. So it's one of them weird ones that it can just play with your perception of of, of how the games went. And although it was definitely an ugly win. I think it was an ugly win that Liverpool largely remained in control of, in my opinion. I don't think Burnley called, caused too much of a threat. and I don't think Liverpool were as bad defensively as, as people were trying to make out after the game. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, just before we finish off, and it does make me think, you know, if, say, if in that game, you know, theoretically speaking, um, point three of Burnley's XG was for opportunities that were probably would have been ruled out for being offside. Say you have that, you know, point three each game or every other game over the course of a campaign, that can really impact those underlying numbers in terms of, you know, expected goals against that that we tend to rely heavily on and others do in terms of analysis. And if you look at the, you know, if you look at the XG against in the Premier League and you see uh, based on FB ref, Liverpool uh, um third, third lowest, 24.1. Then you've got Chelsea twenty two point one, and then City seventeen point two. Yeah, I don't think the difference would be enough between what Liverpool and City are, but you know certainly where Liverpool and Chelsea are, Liverpool could well be a lot closer. Uh, they could surpass Chelsea in this in this particular metric and be a lot closer to City, uh, but be, because of of these, they, they are getting flagged. It's just impacting the numbers a little bit. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting what you said before as well with the whole three balls thing, you know, three balls conceded. I thought that was particularly insistent that, you know, how many of those three balls will have been offsides, but they haven't really mm. been flagged as much. Because if you look at those numbers, Liverpool, have, as I said, Liverpool have conceded, uh, I'm going to say, I think it was 20, 28 three balls this season. Just for a bit of perspective on that, Manchester City have conceded 12. Um Quite a bit of a difference there. City have conceded the second fewest in the league. Mm. Liverpool the third most. But you know how much of that comes down to, as you said, you know the offside trap and and how it works. So yeah, I, I am a bit conscious from a media. I'm not sure how much it matters to be honest, mate. Yeah. A media perspective and what the media narrative is around Liverpool and a leaky defence when the defence isn't actually that leaky. But. Mm. Yeah, there's just something about the offside stuff where I, th- I don't, I love the offside stuff, don't get me wrong, but I, I don't like how it can um, kind of foster these false narratives that Liverpool were a bit more open than they actually were because mm. if you're catching opponents offside all the time, you're the team in control. Mm, I agree with that. So, um, right, we're going to move on to Inter Milan, mate. Uh, the Champions League is starting back up again. Have you missed it? Yeah, yeah, I, I do enjoy it. You know, it's a great competition, isn't it? Uh, always watching as a uh, as a neutral party. As well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, look, it, it, it's it's a, it's a great competition. It's good to have it back, um, and there's some interesting ties. And I think it goes out saying, not just because we're on the show, but this is definitely even from a neutral perspective, this is going to be one of the ones that everyone's watching. This and maybe a PSG Madrid as well. Pick of the ties. Yeah, I've had to go Madrid. I've also got Man United. I suppose I, I think they could actually knock them out there personally. 
Yeah, yeah. let's be honest, you know, Man United's a bit naff, aren't they, at the moment? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it looks a bit one-sided, that one. Yeah, but, um, yeah, it's an assistant tie. It's one of the tougher ties in the uh, in the Champions League so far. Uh, as I said, PSG have got Real Madrid. I suppose that's probably the trickiest to navigate for either team. Mm. But I do think Inter Milan is, is a quite tricky tie, and we did talk about them briefly when the draw was made. Um, before Christmas, not that much has changed really. They are easy to analyse and quite weird in certain areas as well. So in terms of how they'll set up, they are pretty much 5-3-2 every single week. That doesn't really ever change. Um, and it's the system really that Antonio, Antonio Conte used to win the league. But they've got Latoro Martinez and Eden Dzeko up front rather than Latoro Martinez and Romelu Lukaku. But I do think Jekyll's generally a decent replacement, personally. Mm. Um, they've got a midfield three that usually consists of Nico Barella, um, Brozovic, and I think Hakan Chelanoglu. Is that right? Oh, um, yeah. The Turkish, <laughs> the Turkish international. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's it. Mate, I decided, I thought, when we talk about this, if Josh puts that on my toes, I'm just going to say the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should have. Uh, I should have done that myself. Um, yeah, no, I think you did all right on him actually. <laughs> but yeah, but Barella can't play. I can't remember the reasons why, but it's something to do with suspensions or whatever. They obviously play wing backs, and the two wing backs are quite, you know, the very Antonio Conte really. Uh, so you got Ivan Perisic on one flank, who is who was a, a winger a few years back, and you've got Denzel Dumfries on the opposite flank, who people will know from the Euros. And who Dave will know quite well, actually, considering the uh, the links to Everton over the summer. Yeah, yeah, and we might even talk about him on this show. I can't remember or one of the shows, but yeah, he was linked. Um, bizarrely, chose into Milan over Everton. Can't get my head around. <laughs> yeah, that's a it's a it's a mystery that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the back three usually consists of Stefan de Bridge, uh, Milan Skriniar, and Bastoni. I think is usually the third one, but I think he's missing out as well. And I think he's I think he's their quickest centre half. Uh, he's young younger and meant to be quite good. And I think a lad called Federico Damarco was playing his playing it in his place at the moment. Uh, and in goal they have a lad who is getting on. Uh Samir Handanovic. I think he's a good keeper, but he's now thirty four. Hmm. Is he thirty oh no, thirty seven. Thirty seven yeah. years old. Oh yeah. Yeah, I was looking at the numbers before just to get a little gauge on what they're like from a data perspective. And I think you might have flagged before me about um, defensive actions of a goalkeeper outside of their penalty area. Have you flagged mm. that one? Yeah, yeah. It might have been talking about someone like Alisson, funny enough. Yeah, well, in terms of um, that metric for Serie A, uh, he's absolute dead last. Um oh. He's, he's virtually not, absolutely not. And if he, if he was in the Premier League, he'd be bottom of the Premier League as well. So in terms of like the sweeper-keeper type thing, Handanovic offers none of it. He's very much, I, I do think it probably stems from his age, he's very much stay on your line. And uh, I suppose you can get in and exploit that, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it is an interesting one, Josh. I just, when we have a look, not so much data, more actual points, but... Uh... 
they've played Inter played the exact same number of league games as Liverpool, and both sides are on the exact same number of points. <laughs> that but, is uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was surprising. You know, it depends how you how you uh, compare the Premier League to the City Island. You know, if you think that gives anything away, I'm inclined. Obviously, I don't think it's bias either. I'm inclined to think the Premier League's better. Um, Inter haven't really looked that good in Europe. Actually, they've they've looked quite good domestically in terms of you know at least being in a title race with AC, but. Uh, in Europe, they, they haven't looked that great. You know, I looked at the record, and the uh, the only one three group stage matches, two were against uh, that Sharif. Is it Sharif? Yeah. Um, one was against Shakhtar, and that was the one at home. And then they drew with Shakhtar away and lost both games against Real Madrid. Um, so not not really a great record. But if you compare that to Liverpool, you know we are comparing the two. It's a it's a completely different record. So. Yeah, I uh, I probably am backing. Well, I know for a fact actually. I I, I fancy Liverpool's not in progress, but I could see them doing um, victories away and back home in this one, just because I think they're much stronger side. Put it, put it bluntly. Yeah, I I can as well. Even though I think it won't be the trickiest of ties. Like you've just flagged there, um, you know, Inter Milan's record in Europe. I think over the past few years that hasn't been great, and for some reason Antonio Conte doesn't tend to do that well in Europe. Um, Inter do actually what you just said there, averaging exactly the same points per game as Liverpool this season, which is interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Two point two five points per game. The only three teams in Europe who are better than that are Bayern Munich, PSG, and Man City so far this season. But I, I am quite surprised that Inter aren't that great in Europe, and Conte isn't that great in Europe because his systems. His three five two system, his three four three system, whatever you want to call it, whatever he's using, they do tend to be quite flexible, uh, quite adaptable, and I think you need that in Europe. And if you look at what their numbers suggest so far this season, they, I don't know if you've looked at them, Dave, but they don't seem to really fit in one specific box. Um, like they don't seem depressed, they, they but they don't seem to be a high pressing team. They seem capable of dropping into a block, but they're not absolutely a low block team, if you know what I mean. Um, they can build from the back, but aren't absolutely wedded to it. Um, so they seem they seem quite adaptable from from what I'm getting, uh, and I do think they'll need that, but I think against Liverpool it will be a case of Liverpool. I think it'll be similar to the, the games against AC Milan. I think Liverpool will dominate, but I do think going forward, Inter Milan should probably offer a bit more than AC Milan, in my opinion. And I think they're slightly better coached to execute their specific system. Yeah, I don't actually know a ton about uh, Inzaghi's kind of coaching style. It kind of feels like he has just followed on a little bit from what Conte's done. Um, you know, it's basically the same structure, isn't it? It's Yeah, it's, it looks virtually identical. I mean, you know, you're, you're reliant on your wing-backs to, to really get forward and to, uh, to provide the width. I think that will be difficult against Liverpool. I think Liverpool will, should be able to pin them back. Um, I think Lukaku offered a bit of, an out, bit of an outlet on the break, on the transition for Inter Milan last season. I think Diego offers a bit less of that. So I think Liverpool are now more suited compared to last season to really, you know, clog the space and, and keep Inter Milan in one half. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, generally based on what I've read, I think Inzaghi just a little bit more 
maybe laid back, um, a bit of a not Ancelotti, but a bit more of you know that that type take on it. If Ancelotti was to take over the Conte team, I think Inzaghi's done similar things in terms of uh, empowering the players, keeping the same system, that sort mm. of stuff. Just subtle changes. Yeah, very very subtle. Yeah. Changes. I'm just having just on the point that we were talking about them in Europe in recent in recent seasons, initially under Conte and obviously in Zaghi now. Uh where is it? Yeah, it, they've only won three of the last uh eleven Champions League home games, which is a pretty poor record, isn't it? If you think yeah. about it. Um I'm sorry, and Liverpool have obviously went there recently and dominated the albeit, you know, AC Milan. Um, Liverpool have yeah. been to that stadium pretty recently. Yeah, exactly. So I just I just think a lot of it's pointing towards um, you know two two kind of really big names in Europe, but in terms of where both teams are, you 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 are definitely leaning more towards it being a Liverpool victory. And I wouldn't say comfortable because I don't think at this stage in Champions League it's ever that comfortable. Uh, but you still back them to, to to come out on top probably in both ninety minutes. Yeah, I do, I do find myself agreeing, but I also do want to stress that this is probably the best team in Italy. Um, if you look at the numbers, you know, shots on a per-match basis, Inter post the most shots in Serie A, uh, expected goals on a per-match per basis, Inter again, top, uh, passes into the penalty box, I think it's the same. So, you know, that's that's equally important, really, getting into valuable areas, yeah, it is the same. Progressive passes the second in the league on a per ninety basis, um. So they do generally probably look like the best team in Italy, in my opinion. Uh, I I would also say as well, he seems to rely fairly on a uh, crosses. Um, looks like a, I mean, it's supposed to be quite normal for a back three teams. It, it was stretching the pitch wide, using width and things like that. But he pokes the most crosses on a per match basis in in Serie A. Uh, obviously, you've got Jekyll in the box, who's good in the air. But I do think Liverpool, are, again, are well-suited to coping with that. So, I think Liverpool are facing the best team in Italy. But I think Liverpool are very well-suited to make it look like they aren't, <laughs> basically. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go with that. I'm, I'm going I'm to... Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be a... It's, it's, it's a nice match-up for Liverpool, shall we say, without getting too carried away. Yeah, in terms of the the Champions League as a whole, mate, what, how are you viewing it? I mean, I know we have asked this a few times during the season, but just look on a five thirty eight for the whole. Um, Manchester City are the favourites, apparently according to five thirty eight, twenty five percent. Bayern Munich on twenty percent, and then Liverpool on fifteen percent, and then following enough Ajax, <laughs> who I think we flagged as dark horses, but I mean, I I think Liverpool have got a really really strong chance of winning it this season. Yeah, I'd I'd probably go with those predictions actually in terms of where my uh, rank, personal rankings stand. But a lot of that does tie in with um, specifically the immediate fixtures that those say we look at the three ta- teams. You know, Liverpool have got Inter Milan. Although we've just talked about it, you know, being a fixture that they they can come out of uh, and progress through. Compared to what Bayern and City have got, it's a, it's the tougher of the three for sure. You know, Bayern have got uh, RB Salzburg, so you'd expect them to comfortably progress. And City have got Sport and Lisbon. Again, you'd expect them to to progress past them. So I think it's just a, it, 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 
what if if both all three teams progress, um, then it will just be dependent on who's getting who in the in the next round for me in terms of where they've ranked them as as favourites to win it. I think if it was uh, if we were looking at it as like a blank template with just the three teams, wouldn't before uh, a draw I'd put them those three teams very similar in terms of probabilities of winning it. Beyond them, uh, Ajax Dark Horse, I agree. Don't think they'll they'll win it though. I guess you're probably the same. Um, Chelsea, maybe, maybe you know they, they seem to be they seem to be collecting a few trophies, don't they? Early into into uh, Tuchel's reign, obviously the the main one being Champions League last year. So you can't reel them off, reel them out. Uh, Real Madrid, PSG. I think whoever wins that tie will also be a bit of a problem as well. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, it, it, it is going to be interesting to see how, how things go, but I do think this could be Liverpool's, well, I think it is Liverpool's best chance of a major trophy because I think the, obviously the odds in the in the Premier League are very low at the minute. Um, but I think once you couple in Anfield and Liverpool's wide variety of, of weapons and things like that that they can use and the experience Liverpool have got in this tournament, I think... I actually, I also think Liverpool have got a much better defence than Bayern Munich, um, even though you don't often see it in in the Bundesliga. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how things go. But um, hopefully Liverpool get through. Hopefully Liverpool make it easy, and uh, we can. I mean, if you don't, I suppose we'll speak about the second leg in a bit more detail because there'll be more on it. But uh, yeah, I think we'll leave that one there. But <laughs> one of the weapons that I've just mentioned that Liverpool seem to have at the minute is set pieces, Dave. So, against Burnley, Liverpool scored again from a set-piece. And, again, it was the opening goal. <laughs> mm. And uh, I looked through the other day, and in Liverpool's past four Premier League games, four games in a row in the Premier League, Liverpool's opening goal has been a set-piece. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's becoming crucial, isn't it? And it is, really. If you think about it, say we use the Burnley game as the example. Um you know, it's it's not the easiest place to go. It was tough conditions on the day. Not not maybe going your way in open play, uh, but suddenly you, you 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 crucially break that deadlock and and you've got your nose in front, and then you kind of back Liverpool to have enough to see out see out Burnley on any day. But it's all just about getting that you know important goal and taking the lead, and um, it, it is it is huge in terms of in terms of scoring that all-important goal. And I remember just not that long ago, maybe like 12 months ago, just having a quick look at some numbers uh, just to see roughly what the success rate te- tends to be for teams when they score the opening goal. I think I'd use like three or four seasons worth of Premier League data. And um, it was something like uh, for every seven in 10, I think it was. So uh, Yeah, I think I, I know what it is. I think 70%. Yeah, 70%. Uh, so if you score the opening goal 70% of the time, you should go on and win the football match. So it's absolutely huge, really, to get that opening goal. And, you know, it, it, it's it's good having this kind of multifaceted attacking way of doing it. And, and, and that's what they seem to be doing this year. You know, it was a big focus a couple of years ago. Struggled a little bit with key players missing last year. But 
it seemed like it become a big focus again uh, in the summer. Obviously, that uh, Noro eleven coming coming in pre season, didn't he? Did a bit yeah. of work with them. I think they're still working with. Well, in fact, I know they're still working with them behind the scenes. Um, they obviously a company who are working on specifically marginal gains, and um, and they, it seems to be bringing success. Yeah, one one thing I like about it is, uh, you know, the the set piece goals are coming in in, in different ways. They're not all the same set piece happening on you know recurring really. So if you look at the game against Burnley, it was a you know a near post flick on from Sadio Mane that kind of causes the major issue for Burnley. Um, and against Crystal Palace a few weeks ago, Virgil Van Dijk just scores straight from the head very easy. Mm. And I think the other two around that have been scored by Jota. And I think they've been just kind of second balls in and around the six-yard box, which he's obviously becoming a master of. You know, he's yeah. becoming a total poacher, isn't he? So, yeah, Liverpool have got these, you know, a bit of a variety of ways of scoring from set pieces. It doesn't just seem to be the six-foot-five lad has to set, has to head it. You know, just the second balls are getting picked up on all the time. Yeah, I, I do look at. It, the, the only problem I have with set pieces is uh, I think it sometimes, unless you're privy to know what's actually happening and what the plan is, it's really hard to analyse them uh, thoroughly from the outside looking in. Yeah. Uh, but for me, I do wonder, uh, say we use the Burnley one as an example, it may have just been a poor delivery and by chance, but I don't always believe it is. And I, I think rather than it being, as you said, routines to free up the likes of Van Dyke to head it, I do feel like there's there's a focus on trying to maybe just create a bit of chaos and and think about those second contacts, you know. So the the one against Burnley was obviously a flick on, wasn't it? And uh, with players charging in to to meet the second the second contact, um, and I've seen a couple of them this year, uh, and it does make me think of maybe it is it, it is. Um, the first contact isn't necessarily about getting the shot off, and it's more about having plays in specific areas so that um the second phase is is where the where you profit from um and it, it, if you look back at all the, the those can't specifically corner goals there's been a lot of them this year yeah i mean so far this season liverpool have it's 14 goals from set pieces um in the premier league and that is the most second most is on 12 but one thing i noticed this morning when again I was looking at Inter Milan, Inter Milan have the most in Serie A. Uh, they're on twelve joint most alongside Roma, and on the defensive side of the game, they seem to have a good defence. They've conceded only three, which is the second best. So in a way, there you've got a bit of a narrative of you know two real set piece monsters coming together. Um, I'm not specifically sure who is getting. On the end of the, the the Inter Milan deliveries, I mean, I could guess, you know, likes Jeho and Skriniar and players like that, maybe. Mm. But um, it looks like two top set piece teams coming together for you know that's another little Champions League line that I forgot to pick up on, really. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a uh, kind of quite similar sides in those for the reasons we've just stated, isn't it? Um, I think if City R was a little bit more, and I don't want to pull it down too much. It's a top league, obviously, but I think it was a little bit more competitive. Um, you'd be looking at this. This the narrative would be this kind of battle of the, the, the two almost identical teams going at it. Um, given league position points accumulated and that third one, which I didn't know about, uh, similar output in terms of set pieces. 
Yeah. Uh, just one little final note on set pieces, mate. Are you on my scout? Uh, I can be while we're talking. Get it up very quickly while I'm rambling. Yeah. Um, and look at Liverpool's first goal against Leicester City. Uh, it is a set piece, and I'll describe it as you're getting it up because it's one of the. You said before it's it's difficult to analyse these situations. Sometimes yeah. it can look like a thing is premeditated. Sometimes it can look random. Mm-hmm. If you look at the set piece goal, um, Trent Alexander-Arnold takes the corner. It's out swinging, but it's kind of near post. It's di- it doesn't got that much distance on it. But as it comes near post, and Van Dijk's going towards it, if you look towards the back post, three Liverpool players all make exactly the same movements. Yeah. Um, in Firmino, Fabinho, and John Matip, I think that is. They all make exactly the same movements to the back post just before Van Dijk contacts with the header at the near post. Um, and funnily enough, the other one, the other player who's already kind of in that zone anyway, in Diego Jota, just mm. puts it away with a tapping. Um, would you say that one was, was premeditated or is that, what do you think? Yeah, no, I definitely do. And that kind of ties in a little bit to what I was saying a couple of minutes ago about I think it is. Um, it's by design putting it thinking more about the second concept rather than the first I mean another thing that really reiterates that point for me is the amount of outswinging corners that Pearl take uh, compared to the rest of the Premier League because traditionally with set pieces it's in swingers that are considered the more dangerous because obviously the tra- trajectory of yeah, let me try that again trajectory <laughs> of the ball is going towards the goal, meaning that's easy to get a glance and header on there. Uh, but, I mean, for Liverpool this year, um, they've attempted 31 in swinging corners and 132 outswingers. I mean, to put that in contact, uh, context, that's the highest... You've got, in the you've got a little bit of a preference there, then. <laughs> yeah, to say the least, mate. Uh, <laughs> you know, to put that in context... The second team in terms of the highest number of outswinging corners this year, uh, this season, sorry, is Manchester United, and they've attempted 60. So, you know, Liverpool are well over twice as many outswingers. You know, they, they, they massively favour outswingers. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why, if you look at the goals, I think it is all about that, that second phase of the uh, of the corner, and it's and it's proven to be successful. Yeah, I think specifically with that example that I've just used there as well, I do think Van Dijk is intending to get a shot away there with his head, but I think Liverpool kind of appreciate that. The keeper's probably going to save that, but the keeper's probably not going to be able to handle it. And that, that that's then when the second phase comes in, that's when the second ball comes in, because it kind of comes off the keeper's attempt to save it, basically. Kasper Schmeichel mm-hmm. saves it. It goes right into Joss's path and he just taps it in. I think a lot of the time Liverpool appreciate those outswinging crosses and headers to be saved, but to not be caught. And if they fall in dangerous areas, and you know Liverpool can maximise it. So mm, yeah, you know, it's going to be in- fun. Yeah, just on that, I was going to say, you know, how I'd kind of summarise it. I think they they put contingency plans in place, so it's not like corner routines traditionally have just been about uh, doing X, Y, Z to free up this player to get the headed shot. Whereas now it does kind of feel like, so say what you just said there, um, 
the first the first plan is say Van Dyke to get that headed shot and see if he can score the goal from it. But if he doesn't get that proper contact and he just can only direct it ever so slightly and it's going wide, then you've got three players following up on it. Or what happens? You know, he gets it on target, it's saved, but then it comes out to Jot who's following it in. So it's it's contingency plans, basically, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is very insistent and it's a weapon that Liverpool are obviously using of late. It's allowed Liverpool to get four leads in a row in the Premier League um, and hopefully it'll continue and considering the Champions League coming up, Inter Milan obviously seems to be quite capable when it comes to set pieces. It's going to be interesting to see how things work out there. But just a final note for this week's pod. Um, the word is that James Milner might be getting a one-year extension on his deal. Um, a little bit surprising. Are you are you surprised by that or? Uh, uh, a little bit because uh, I think he's finally started to look a little bit more human when I've when I've watched them this year. You know, maybe that the immense kind of fitness that he has is it's not waning as such, but maybe impacting his ability. Uh, but that being said, I think every great side needs utility players. You know, players who can come in and do a reliable job in different positions and that's what he is so I guess that's maybe Klopp's thinking behind it yeah I mean in, in a January he's just gone he did just turn 49 I think <laughs> <laughs> no he turned, uh, he turned 36 in January he's just gone yeah. Um but I mean I've I will say I've got no issues with a player like that staying around personally Um he might have his faults. He might give away a few fouls. Well, he does give away a few fouls. Um, but I do think that you, you can't really put a number on on the value of a player like that. You know, the, the, the leadership aspect and communication aspect, the experience. It does sound a little bit cliche, but I think in the case of Milner in particular, he has, he, he's really been around. You know, that man, I think he can offer a lot of value behind the scenes and stuff. So if he wants to keep playing, maybe Liverpool... I've found a spot for him. Um, but I am inclined to think that if he's going to keep getting minutes for Liverpool somehow, mm-hmm. I, I'd be surprised if it's if, if that's going to come from Liverpool maybe not signing a midfielder in the summer or, or losing out on one of the midfield targets. I think it might be. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll accept a fee in the summer for Nico Williams and maybe Milner will get minutes as a right-back behind Trent. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a guess, but... I think I do think Liverpool will have a little bit of a midfield overhaul in the summer, um, and I'm not sure where Milner will get minutes if he's going to stay on for another year. But right back could be could be the way. I'm not sure. Mm. Mm. Potentially, just just to have it have that option there, you're probably right. Yeah. I mean, obviously you've got to be careful giving giving players like of of this age certain contracts, but it depends on what wages willing to take and. If he's taken, you know, only an extra year, I think that's fine. Um, have you got any issues with keeping a player like that around, Dave? Or I mean, I know he's he's getting on, as I said, but you know the value that he think, offers. Yeah, I don't think he's a huge earner, though, is he? Getting, getting well, I think, he, I think when he first signed years and years ago, he was. But I think now, yeah, I think he's probably yeah. around one hundred, one fifty, maybe something like that. Oh, I didn't think it'd be that much. Wow, I uh, think. He, I think Signed. I think he, he signed for something like 150 when he first signed, 130 or something. Mm. But I, I wonder I if yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to like Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder if there's a if there's potentially a little bit of this kind of progressing to that coaching 
uh, aspect as well. Maybe that he's, he's eyeing up something like that. He's going to stay one more year, stay around it, and then potentially move into the the coaching setup at maybe youth level or something. Um, well, he got heavily involved that Shrewsbury game, was it in the FA Cup? Yeah, well, I did. I did see comments from him though, saying, "I will keep playing for as long as I possibly can." <laughs> mm, right. So simply because when you stop, you stop. That's it. So yeah, fair. I had a feeling he, he would potentially go to Leeds. Personally, I think a lot of pe- people felt that. But if you can keep around for the next year, as I said, I've got no major issues with it. Really, I think it's I think it's a sensible move, providing you can you can get him the minutes that he seems to want. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, so we uh, we'll round up there. I think um, it's a forty-five minutes episode today, but we did get through a fair bit. So, mm-hmm. Dave, thanks for joining us, mate. Thank you, mate, and uh, cheers, everyone. Yeah, and we'll be back next week to talk about more Liverpool-related points. So thanks for tuning in, and we will see you then. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.